With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ce qui se passe dans les bois est un véritable podcast sur la criminalité. Nous discutons d'événements qui sont souvent de nature violente. La discrétion de l'auditeur est conseillée. What Happens in the Woods is a true crime podcast. We discuss events that are often violent in nature. Listener's discretion is advised. In 1984, a man was murdered outside of his home in Tacoma, Washington, having been shot twice and left for dead. No apparent motive could be found, and there was little evidence to go off of. But there was a lot of community chatter. With rumors and strong leads coming in, police eventually would arrest two men who were both charged with aggravated first-degree murder. However, each of these men would embark on completely different journeys. In our Season 4 opening episode, we tackle very tough subject matter, and a specific case where the question of competency played a big part in the outcome. This leads to the question, where does mental health fit into the justice system? This is True Crime Podcast, What Happens in the Woods, with your host, Justin Bryce. Let's get started. Welcome back, campers. What the fuck is sadly over? We're back to our regular episodes as much as Bryce hates that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Boo. Oh, but hey, we're in our fourth season of this podcast. That's something to celebrate. That's a good thing. Boo. Boo. Boo hoo. All right. Well, we couldn't be happier to have you all with us. As always, we have Bryce. Hello. Hello, Bryce. Hello. <laughs> so what the fuck is over? Halloween's over. What do you have to live for now? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. It's good times. Good times. All right. What do you have for us today? <laughs> <Not there>. <laughs> <laughs> the look on his face. That was classic. If you guys... Uh, heard our Halloween episode, you will have known that Bryce did put out an, a part of an episode with Beth from Crimes and Closets. He did his own case and he researched it. And I still maintain to this day, he is perfectly capable of doing this and giving me a break every once in a while. You're, you're breaking up. I can't hear yeah, you. Yeah. That's classic excuse for you. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with this equipment. Oh, you're breaking up. oh that's a damn shame. All right, any updates for us? Uh, no updates. None? None. It's your birth month. You oh, have no stop. updates? Need, no. <laughs> no. No? No. We're no. still in Scorpio season. Yeah. Yeah. You're not even excited, are you? Oh. You're like, fuck this shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of right. how it feel now, too. <laughs> All right, well, uh, no updates, none. Oh, sorry. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, who's in the lead now? It's still Canada. Canada. Yay. We love Canadians. Australia's there. We love the Canadians. Well, we love the Australians too. Did you see the um the nice comment we had from a listener in Australia? 
No. She was a new listener. Oh. Yeah. It was it was a very nice comment. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Are we ready to get into a case? I guess we are. All right, gather around the campfire, my friends, while I tell you a story. This case will be our first, uh, a first for our podcast. We have discussed a lot of things here, but we have never discussed a convicted death row inmate being exonerated from all charges. What? Right. But of course, this case has something of a twist, which we will talk about at the end. Of course it does. Of course it does. So this is the case of Benjamin Harris, who was convicted of the murder for hire of Jimmy Lee Turner on October 29th, 1984. This happened in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. Now, I I wish, and I this is what causes me distress, like not distress, this is what causes me to be frustrated. There's very little information on this actual crime. Very little. Really? And it's, it is upsetting because we, we want to pay, place the importance on victims. Yeah. Um, always. Yes. In this story though, there are arguably two victims. He, but Jimmy, you know, Jimmy's important and I would have liked to have given him the respect that he deserves as a murder victim. I would have I I wish that there was a better way that I could present this. Yeah. But there it, there really is an information. My request for information took too long. We had to at some point record this. I yeah. was ready to pre- record it. Um there are a lot of sealed documents for whatever reason. There's a lot of information that I was not able to search because it's either not available or it's not meant to be available. Yeah. What I do know is Jimmy Turner was a Tacoma area car mechanic who was found shot dead outside of his home in the Hilltop area. That was on the early morning of June 14th, 1984. He had been shot once in the neck, which was fatal, Mm -hmm. and then once in the shoulder. Police had little evidence to go on at the scene, and this was before DNA, so not much in the way of help to identify the person responsible. And they had no, uh, from what I understand, and I could be wrong again because not much available, no weapon, nothing to go on. But they had plenty of rumors and they had plenty of leads coming in from the community. The day Jimmy was found, there was a phone call from a local inmate in the Tacoma jail by the name of Raymond Meeks to the Tacoma PD. Meeks claimed that he knew Benjamin Harris to be the person responsible for hiring a man by the name of Gregory Bonds to kill Jimmy Turner for a whopping $1,000. Oh, was it, I thought this was like older. In 1984, it's still not much. Um, I mean, $1,000 was a decent amount of money, but yeah, I wouldn't say murder for hire. I wouldn't say that's enough to, to possibly go to jail yeah. and, and be convicted of that. It was noted for about a month prior to Jimmy Turner's murder that Benjamin Harris had been in frequent contact himself with a Sergeant Parkhurst with the Tacoma PD. He, he called in, he wrote letters in. They were very well aware of who Benjamin Harris was. Harris claimed his car had been vandalized and that someone was trying to kill him. Apparently, there was information given to Tacoma PD that Harris had shot at his stepfather in December of 1983 over a will and a probate dispute in regards to Harris's deceased mother. If that was true, no charges were ever filed. So he's a known person to the PD. Yeah. Something interesting to note about Harris was his presence in local Tacoma society. He describes himself as a well-dressed man who liked to dress in a flashy suit and ties and go about town. He had held many jobs in the area. He at one point worked for Boeing. He was not, you know, yeah. he was doing pretty well for himself. Um, he worked, you know, hard labor jobs. And it actually resulted in a hand injury that made finding work after that hard for him. He regularly went to a cafe, like a coffee 
house um, where local enforcement and lawyers went to eat seemed to be pretty buddy-buddy with a lot of people in, Mm -hmm. in his area. It was said that he prided himself on being a police informant and helping to report information he had on crimes and criminals in the area. And we've heard that before from a few different cases. Like, we've seen that before. On the day of Turner's body being found, the same day Meeks tells them about the kill contract between Bonds and Harris, Harris himself actually called investigators and asked about any rumors going around about him being involved in this case. He said he had heard rumors he was being named as a person of interest. And from what I can gather, it's hard to weed through all of this information, is that Harris had used Turner as a mechanic, and there may have been issues with the car being fixed or not fixed, and the fee charged. There's also mention that a woman that Harris was seeing maybe was involved somehow. Uh Again, it's very convoluted information. There was possibly some bad blood, is what I could gather, between the two men, between Turner and and Harris. Okay. Regardless, Harris volunteers his services to get the investigators whatever info he can on the matter of who did the shooting. So he doesn't come out and say that he's involved or that he knows anybody that's involved. Yeah. He just offers to help. Gregory Bonds was arrested and charged on July 27th, 1984 with aggravated murder in the first degree of Jimmy Turner. He would later have all charges against him dropped and he was acquitted. And I'll, I'll have more information on that in a a little bit. Okay. What was incredibly frustrating is that I cannot get records on that arrest on his trial and the proceedings. Why is that? No idea. Um, The Pierce County records pulled up nothing, no results. The Washington State records, no results. There is mention of a few things, but it's only when you're searching Benjamin Harris. So it's not like it's sealed. It's just. It it might be sealed. I'm not sure. Um, Because when I'm pulling up results, it, he has, Gregory Bonds has a history. He has a long history in Tacoma, in Pierce County, of uh, criminal activity, arrests, and jail time. So I can see that there was an arrest made on that date in the Pierce County records. Yeah. But I'm not allowed to look at any of it. I can't even request the documments. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or maybe they don't have them. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. It was 1984, so it's not like it's electronic. Yeah, it's very hard, especially still now. I mean, businesses are, especially like local agencies, counties, you know, government agencies. You can be in person in these places, but some of them still you have to make an appointment. Uh, it's still kind of hard to to get these things yeah. if you're not able to request them online. Yeah. So, yeah, I was not able to look at any of these documents. So. I mean, what that leads to is I have no idea why he was acquitted. What I do know is that he was in legal trouble for, like I said, a long time after that. Harris was interviewed voluntarily on July 2nd when police went to his home and on the 17th and 18th of that month by Tacoma PD. On the 17th, he told police he was afraid for his life again. He claimed his car had been broken into the night of the shooting and someone took two guns from it. Then he asked them to supply him with two guns to protect himself with. Of course, they did not. (laughs) The police is not going to give you guns. No. On the 18th, he visited the county jail asking to speak with Raymond Meeks. After that meeting, he came back to the police. He admitted to being with Gregory Bonds on the night of the shooting. Meeks, in turn, after that meeting, gives police a signed statement that he has knowledge of Harrison Bonds being in on this killing together. It's important to note Harris was never under suspicion during these first interviews. And as uh, such, he was not read his rights prior to any info that he relayed. When he was interviewed at the police station on the 19th of July, however, he was read his rights. Um, He was questioned and let go. He was then arrested as a material witness on the 30th and again released. 
I'm not quite clear why they did that because up until that time he had been voluntarily help trying to help, giving information. However, they felt that that was the necessary step to take at that point. Okay. On August 7th and 8th, he submitted to two polygraph tests, respectively, one on each day. And after the second one, he was arrested and charged with aggravated murder of Jimmy Turner. Huh. You couldn't see, like, why or what he had said? No. Mm -mm. Okay. So I, I would have liked to have gotten the arrest warrants for both of them. I think that would have cleared up a lot of, of oh, yeah. questions that I had. Yeah, I was not able to see them. So throughout his interviews and even through the trial, Harris was still writing letters to the Tacoma PD that were completely erratic. Some talked about a conspiracy with his family and the police. Some mentioned the mafia and the KKK. He stated his family was out to get him and was going to have him committed so that they could have his inheritance from his mother. Okay. There were school records that stated as a child, Harris, quote, had emotional problems and was eligible for special classes at age nine. It was asked that his family have him be evaluated by a psychologist multiple times in his school records. On December 16th, 1957, it was believed Harris tried to commit suicide by shooting himself in the chest. There were medical records available that confirm this and also reports of self-inflicted knife wounds three other times in 1964, 1966, and 1967. The family claimed they tried to get resources for Harris. They tried to get him help. They all knew he needed it, but they were unsuccessful. And looking back at that time period and what we know now, I have no doubt that that's true. There was no help to be found for mental health crisis at that time. Uh, yeah. And there, especially for, I don't want to presume what, what um, type of like socioeconomic background that his family had. Yeah. He is an African-American male. So I cannot reasonably, um, you know, say, oh, you could have gotten help. You, yeah. you guys should have tried harder. Especially in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. Late 60s, early 70s. It, it was not common practice. Um, you, no, no. you would have been sent to a sanitarium or, or something like that. Harris did have a previous run-in with the law in the late 60s when he was convicted of manslaughter after shooting a man dead who had attacked him. It was later overturned as the incident had been deemed in self-defense. Okay. It is stated in some documents that Harris was on probation for two years after the crime. Um, his original plea was of guilty, was allowed to be changed, and the ruling was overturned. So his conviction was overturned. I can only find a mention of this, not much else, so I really I can't comment on why it was overturned, what they found that led them to presume that he actually was not guilty, um, why he pled guilty in the first place. I, I can't find mention of it. Then there is another run-in with the law, which seems to be assault charges that were brought up against Harris in 1968 by his ex-wife. Again, this is the only mention I have. In the case of Jimmy Turner's murder, the prosecution filed a petition to request the death penalty. It was never objected to by the defense counsel. An evaluation was requested for a psychological review prior, prior to the trial. Mm-hmm. Harris was sent to Western State Hospital to undergo evaluation in September of 1984. While Harris was at the state hospital, a series of mental evaluations was set to be given by Dr. Kathleen Mayers. There are three accepted tests that are set as the norm for mental competency, at least at that time. The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the Rotter Incomplete Sentences Blank, and the Rorschach Diagnostic Procedure. Okay. I know. It's, it's, That's mouthfuls. Only psychologists will come up with names like that. It's Yeah. yeah. <laughs> According to the doctor, on October 8th, these were done. They were completed. Benjamin Harris was deemed competent to stand trial. However, prior medical and academic documentation were not given to the hospital staff by the defense lawyer, nor did the hospital request it 
to see if it was available. And I will mention this a little bit more in depth in a bit. So there was a small delay at the beginning of the trial due to his appointed lawyer wrapping up another case. Um, so there was a one week continuance so he could, you know, in that case and get on this one. Yeah. So not a, a whole lot of time to get ready for a murder trial where your, your client is being, you know, the sentence possibly could be the death penalty. I would say a week's not a good enough amount of time. However, the attorney didn't ask for more time. Also, during that week, Harris was supposed to have had a psych eval with a psychologist um, outside of the hospital. So of his choosing so that there was a second opinion on his competency. And I'm not sure if he was supposed to mitigate that himself. I really don't see how he could have. Being that he's in a state hospital, yeah, I I don't think he would have had the means to have done that, and I don't think that that's on him to to do. I'm pretty sure that his lawyer should have handled that, regardless of who should have done it. It never happened. Oh, also there was never a competency hearing prior to going to trial to review these documents or the doctor's findings, and you don't necessarily need to have one done, from what I learned. Yeah, I disagree with that. Um, but of course, I'm not a lawmaker. I don't do these things for a living. Yeah, I do find though that if you're going to have to have somebody evaluated, yeah, why would a competency hearing not be mandatory? How do you know what this doctor is going to say? How do you know what these results said? How do you? How does the court know how this is going to play into his his trial? They don't until they get there. Yeah. So I find that that's unfair. Whether I'm right or wrong, that's my opinion. I just find that that's unfair, not only in his case, in any case. Yeah. I, I can't understand that. The trial would have been October 15th. However, there was that week to continuance. It pushed it back to the 22nd of October. The defense attorney's angle basically was none. He had so little time to prepare that... Um, he decided that the best thing was to have Harris plead guilty. The reason being that he was on trial as the person who paid a contract of $1,000 to have Gregory Bonds kill Jimmy Turner. Not that he himself was the person who actually committed the crime. So he pled guilty not to murder for hire, but to murder. Why? Is, uh, it, because, con- like, exactly. I'm wondering if, <laughs> Murder for hire costs or has like a higher sentence or there's no chance for parole if you're on that charge. I don't know. It's considered aggravated. It adds that aggravated. From what I can understand, it's it's like mandatory. If it's aggravated first degree murder, it, yeah. the death penalty is there. Okay. From If I'm understanding that correctly. But yeah, to, to have... The reasoning is just, it's flawed. It's very flawed. No. So on October 22nd, hours before the beginning of the trial, Harris and his lawyer met with the prosecution and the police, you know, were there to give a statement of his guilt with the understanding that they could make a plea bargain and take the death penalty off the table. The basics of this statement was that he and Bond went over to the home of Turner and that Bond fired the first shot and then, quote, flipped the gun over to Benny, Old West style, and Benny did him in. Keep in mind, he was shot and killed with the first shot. Okay. That was the killing shot. If Harris did not shoot that, then he would not have been, he should not have pled guilty to first degree murder. Yeah. Again, very flawed thinking. I wonder if he was coerced. Well, we'll get into some of that. Okay. The prosecution did not have the intention at that meeting to make a plea deal. The death penalty stood and Harris was now admitting to his guilt of murder. He would also take the stand during the trial to confirm this information. At no point did his lawyer ever say, 
yeah, that's we're going to need a, a continuance. We're going to need I'm going to need to talk to my client further than yeah. I'm going to, you know, at no point did his lawyer advocate for him so that he could take that death penalty charge off of the off, table Yeah, at no point. And that was the whole point of having him plead guilty was if he pled guilty, Hey, we want to meet up. We want to, you know, he'll give you his statement. Let's talk. Yeah. They had, the prosecutors had no intention of that whatsoever. When Dr. Mayers took the stand to discuss her evaluation at the trial of, of Benjamin Harris, she noted that she felt her time and tests confirmed Harris was competent to understand his solution and his, the court proceedings. She also did, though, state he did have a, a tendency towards paranoia, like a paranoia-type personality. Yeah. Okay. Some things that I want to mention about the trial and sentencing that are brought up in the article I read on deathpenaltyinfo.org is that during the trial, there was forensic evidence that the jury never saw nor heard about the actual evidence of the shooting. So yeah. it was confirmed there was only one shooter. The bullets could only have come from one area and the way that they hit the body it would not have been possible for the shooter to one shooter shoot, kill yeah. him. And then as he's dropping, flip the gun over to another shooter and shoot him again. It's not possible from the angles of how the bullets entered the body yeah. and where they entered. The jury never heard any of that information, never saw any of that information. Another problematic area is the lack of viable witnesses who were interviewed by the defense team or brought to testify on Harris's behalf during the trial. Even though the assisting attorney claims Harris gave names of people who could possibly help him, and there were others on a list that Tacoma PD had in their records. So out of 32 witnesses, only three were spoken to by his lawyer. Three. 19 of them, however, testified at the trial. 19? 19. How does that happen? Right. Family members who could have given statements as to the paranoia and mental state of Harris were not interviewed, nor brought to take the stand during the trial. Okay. Anybody who could have given a history on this man was not asked to speak on his behalf. The trial for Benjamin Harris was quickly ended on October 26, 1984, the jury handed in a guilty verdict of the charges of aggravated first-degree murder. And the sentencing, the hearing that followed, would just be more of the same bullshit. During closing statements in the sentencing portion of his trial, his lawyer told the jury, quote, Harris doesn't have the same moral code as we expect. That he, quote, belonged to a class of men who don't work, carry guns, and kill people. This is his defense lawyer. Sounds like a stand-up guy. Yeah. In the prosecution statements, they mentioned his prior criminal history and the conviction of manslaughter. The defense never objected, although he should have, for reasons that I'll state soon. It was not hard for the jury to come back with a sentence of death for Benjamin Harris, and he was reprimanded to the custody of the state uh, prison in Walla Walla to await his death sentence. Benjamin Harris was to be sentenced to death on November 5th. However, a motion was filed instead in arrest of judgment or request for a new trial on his behalf. Primarily, this is in part because it came out after the trial that out of the three tests the Washington State Hospital staff and Dr. Mayers were supposed to give Harris, yeah. one of them was never scored, nor was it even finished. The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or the MMPI, as they call it, mm -hmm. was given to Harris to fill out, and it was something that he needed to fill out. He never finished it. I'm sure they didn't push him to finish it either. No. It was never scored. The findings never considered. But this information did not come to light until after the trial ended. Dr. Mayers was quite resolute in stating during her time on the stand that she had evaluated Harris and she was confident in her findings. 
So a new hearing was set for December 10th to allow time for a second opinion evaluation by a psychologist of the defense's choosing. Dr. Alan Trawick and Dr. Mayers were then asked to further eval Harris before this hearing. Not that it mattered, because while Dr. Trawick conceded that Harris may indeed be suffering from some sort of mental health issues, such as like delusion or paranoia, he still found him competent. Dr. Mayers just stuck with her original conclusions. During this time, the trial for Gregory Bonds began where Harris actually testified for the prosecution. You would think the state would offer some sort of incentive for him doing this. Yeah. Right. If you're going to testify, usually it is, you know, in that in that plea deal. Right. Well, you would be wrong. Again, I don't have any information on this trial except that it began November 13th of 1984, ended on December 6th with a verdict of not guilty. Okay. Right. I don't know what um, evidence they had on him. Again, the probable cause report, the warrant for his arrest would have been great to have known. Yeah. Because they arrested Gregory Bonds first. They had to have had cause to do that. Yeah. What was it? And what was it that got him off? Super secret police stuff. Right. Harris was still dealing with his own issues at this time. However, I'm sure it was heartening, you know, disheartening to hear that he had been convicted guilty by this time. He had been sentenced to to be put to death. Yeah. But the person who actually was supposed to have been responsible for the crime was acquitted. Yeah, that would suck. I, I don't know how shitty that would make you feel. His hearing was pushed back to January 9th, 1985, and the motion for a new trial or arrest of judgment was denied. And then came the appeals, and there are many that we will go over and they all have a lot of information. So when we come back from a quick break, we'll go over all of that. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The first appeal was entered on February 11th with the same attorney who had represented him during the trial and sentencing and the appeal was denied. The conviction was upheld and the sentencing upheld by the Washington Supreme Court. A death warrant was then entered on December 15th, 1986. Harris again appealed, this time with a new lawyer, on February 23rd, 1987. One month later, the appeal was again denied, this time with the U.S. Supreme Court. Next was a state personal restraint petition that was filed with the Washington Supreme Court on September 7th, 1987. I had to look up what exactly that was. Yeah. I've never heard of it. Um, from what I can tell, it's a type of appeal where you can submit new evidence if you have it. Yeah. And that says, I was unlawfully convicted or sentenced of a crime. Apparently, not every state allows this type of appeal, but Washington is one that does. Okay. And it, it works along the lines of how you think an appeal does. It's, it's basically a, a second form of an appeal with certain criteria. However, out of the total of three of these, Harris eventually would file three. The first one, of course, is denied. The second one in 1988, however, gets him somewhere. His lawyer was hoping for a stay of execution until further psych evaluation could be done and a court-appointed mental health professional be assigned. In March of 1989, they got the appointed mental health professional, but they lost the stay of appeal, um, So, or the stay of execution. So he okay. was still set to be executed, but he did have... A representation for his mental health issues, concerns. After another hearing in May of 1989, where Harris's defense team again argued that he was not competent to be executed, the courts ruled he was. They stated no reason to delay here, 
So an execution date was to be set July 11th, 1989. Appeal number three was filed June 2nd, 1989, and again denied. The third personal restraint petition was filed June 20th. This time they challenged the, quote, validity of the competency hearing held in the trial court on May 30th, 1989. It was, as you may have guessed by now, denied. Okay. But then a petition for writ of habeas corpus and stay of execution was filed with the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. And this actually got a different result. In this appeal, Harris's lawyer contended again that Harris was not competent and would not be able to assist in his federal hearings. Those findings, for once, were validated, and he was appointed a guardian ad uh, litem in November of 1990 to help him navigate all of this and get him correctly evaluated. And this is where a lot of shit comes to light. Okay. Now, so there's a lot of information from this one specific appeal. The first thing that was stated was that the defense attorney uh, regularly did not bill for his hours. So the attorney that went through the trials, the sentencing, and the first appeal with him. Uh He didn't bill for his hours appropriately on a regular basis, apparently. I don't know if that was to save taxpayer money or if he forgot to do it. But it was noted in the appeal that going off of the billable hours alone, which is what Harris and his appeal lawyers had, Uh was not sufficient to accurately show how many hours were worked on Harris's behalf. According to the billable hours recorded with the state, the attorney handling his defense gave this case a total of 13 hours and 48 minutes before they went to trial. Nice. Also stated in this appeal is that the defense attorney was in possession of letters and statements from Harris that raised red flags on his mental competency, as well as his previous medical records, none of which were shared with the Washington State Hospital. Of course not. Remember, Harris had been given, like he had been giving unsolicited statements and letters to the Tacoma PD before being arrested. They had that. That was not shared with Washington State Hospital either. Hmm. He, you know, basically interjected himself into the investigation. Yeah. You know, by calling that detective that he was in contact with and telling him, uh, you know, the Tacoma PD and that detective that he would be able to help find the person responsible for Turner's death. According to the appeal information, Harris's lawyer went through the motions of having him evaluated But it wasn't with the belief that anything was going to come out of it or that he was anything other than mentally competent. Yeah. He thought that he was faking. The assistant lawyer was the one who was pushing to have Harris evaluated prior to the trial. And he did believe that there was some merit to his condition, to him having a mental condition. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, it didn't help him. Yeah. There were numerous mentions during the first appeal with the trial lawyer that speaking to Harris was difficult. That while he was being interviewed uh, in person and in in jail specifically, mm-hmm. he was noted to claim that the jail was bugged and that he didn't want to talk. He also repeatedly mentioned the mafia connection, KKK reference, um, very conspiracy theory. And that he was being set up. Yeah. But, you know, that so that was in jail and over the phone. But in person, he didn't have any problems speaking about his case. So he did at the trial, he would try to talk to the lawyer. um, But he would not do it over the phone or in the jail because he thought he was being listened to. He thought he was bugged. So that goes along with his. Paranoia. Paranoia. The appeal also addressed the lack of evidence mentioned at the trial, specifically the forensic evidence only showing that there was one shooter. If the defense had spent more time researching and investigating, they may have gotten that info prior to the trial and used it to prove Harris was innocent. But at the time, the defense, you know, by the time he got it, he had already had Harris state that he was guilty. Yeah. And he had signed a statement saying that he was guilty. Hmm. 
The appeal then states that Harris was never notified that the prosecution was going to mention the manslaughter charges, nor the assault charges, at the penalty phase of the trial. And as I mentioned, nor did his lawyer object when they were mentioned. His first lawyer. Yes. Yeah. So because both of those um, charges were over 10 years old, yeah. there's a question of if they should have been mentioned for them, you know, in front of the jury to take into consideration. There is also the concern that the manslaughter charge itself had been dismissed. Yeah. He was no longer a convicted, you know, person of that charge. Yeah. Should not have been mentioned at all. No. Basically, the prosecution lawyer said, he's killed before. Obviously, he'll do it again. Even though it's supposed to be dismissed. Right. Hmm. So the mention of the prior convictions in the use of capital punishment was found admissible during the penalty phase, however. So mentioning them while he was being sentenced for a capital punishment was, was not something that they found out of the ordinary. It was okay to do. Yeah. But they still should have had the right to object to it. Mm-hmm. And they, his defense lawyer at the trial should have said, hey, he's no longer convicted of that. That's irrelevant. Yeah. Should have objected. Yeah. It also came out in the appeal that there may have been a conflict of interest with Harris's representation during the trial, the sentencing, and the first appeal. Apparently, the same law firm... And in some cases, this same very lawyer had represented not only Harris, but also his family members over the years. So the manslaughter charge, it was the same lawyer who was his defense attorney during this trial. His divorce and his assault charge was the same law firm. His mom's probate was the same lawyer. And remember, that was still going on. That was an ongoing thing during this trial for murder. What is especially troubling was that his lawyer was familiar with Harris and his emotional and mental health issues. And he even used it, commented on it during his assault trial. So when he assaulted his wife in 1968, this same lawyer who was his trial lawyer for this conviction of, you know, aggravated murder of Jimmy Turner. That same lawyer said specifically during that assault trial, he has mental health issues. But it wasn't brought up in his manslaughter trial. And then you're going to turn around and say, yeah, I I think he's faking it. Yeah. I don't really care if he gets a competency hearing and I don't really care if he gets evaluated for these things in the right way. You don't get to pick and choose when mental health serves your purpose to, to, use as a defense yeah it either is a defense or part of the reason for your defense or it's not and then we have something that i want to highlight so as to his incompetence or you know alleged incompetence harris contended that the full amount of information needed to make his judgment was never given to those who needed it for example washington state hospital during their evaluations before his trial or his own defense attorney. And as mentioned before, there was no pretrial competency hearing. No. So this kind of is very important. In the appeal document, the state or the prosecution gives a response to all of these claims. They always do. So anytime there's an appeal, they state what they're appealing about. You know, it could be multiple things. It could be one thing. But the state representation, the prosecution, always has a rebuttal. And that's always listed in the appeal after the complaint. So they, of course, claim. Do they have to? They should. Because essentially this is a paper form that is being filled out. You know, you're appealing and you're saying why you're appealing the charges, the conviction. It's just like a trial where the opposition has a right to respond. Yes. And why? And they can they can note, you know, they can note uh, prior cases. They can note why they feel they did everything right, or this is you know infound, unfounded. Yeah. So of course they claim that they did everything by the book. Yeah. They did everything the way they were supposed to. In the particular claim on competency, this is their response. "Quote: The state disputes that there was any real evidence that Harris was incompetent." 
Further stating, quote, the testimony there and the ruling of the trial court demonstrates that the incompetent testing analysis had no impact on the expert's uh, pretrial opinion regarding his competency. Without any other evidence to raise a suspicion that Harris was not fully competent, the state contends that trial court had no duty to hold a competency hearing. And basically in response to that, the circuit court judge states, well, you know, it's yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. What we didn't know, we didn't know we didn't know. Yeah. Sure, a competency hearing uh, pretrial would have been a great idea. But, you know, no one can, no one told the court yeah. or the judge that there were concerns. Um, no one told each other that there were these red flags of all these letters that he was sending to multiple places and, and things that he was saying. Mm-hmm. Communication was down. Yeah. We can't go back and fix that. No. And then we have the evaluation that states he's competent from a state doctor. His lawyer never got him an outside evaluation pre-trial. Yeah. Um, the other doctor that eventually does do uh, an evaluation kind of sort of agrees with the first eval. What can we do about that? I can't do anything about it. No. Okay. And and that's true. I mean, it's absolutely true. You don't know what you don't know. But you can always contest it. Right. It's the state's response there that I want. I wanted to make, you know, particular emphasis on. The proceedings for the writ of habeas corpus took a pause um, to allow for a final and fourth personal restraint petition appeal that was filed. This one with concerns to the jury instructions during the sentencing of the trial. Again, Harris was denied an appeal. That was on March 16th, 1993. Mm -hmm. So we're almost 10 years after the murder actually happened. It is the last appeal that he and his legal team could take to the state. However, it had no bearing on the federal court. According to the federal appeal, the judge agreed that Harris's amendment rights were violated. The right to, quote, effective assistance of counsel was violated by counsel's deficient performance during the guilty and penalty phases. As a result of this constitutional error, there was substantial and injurious effect or influence in determining the jury's verdicts. This was to his first lawyer. Yes. With the 13 hours. Yes. Yeah. The conclusion is based on the prejudice of individual specific deficiencies and on the uh, cumulative effect of all deficiencies. And in short, that was the finding of the appeal. It comes down to the competency of the defense lawyer. Yeah. Doing their job to defend their client. The lawyer should have worked for him and really worked against him. Yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Habeas corpus was granted and the conviction of aggravated first degree murder along with his death sentence were overturned. On October 22nd, 1993, the findings of the appeal were filed. The Honorable Robert J. Bryan stated, the one person in the courtroom who is professionally obligated to display a sense of loyalty and advocacy has described Harris in such a way that left him with little or no credibility no humanity and no means to be identified as a peer of the jury. Exactly. Yeah. Everything he stated was, I wish I spoke that well. So here's the twist. I mentioned it was coming and here it is. Okay. All right. So Harris is granted habeas corpus. The state of Washington was either to retry Benjamin Harris or set him free. Mm -hmm. If they went to trial, they would have needed their witnesses Um, But that was going to be an issue since some of them were now in jail or wouldn't testify or were even had deceased. They knew they couldn't go through a trial with all these, you know, issues and all these years later and hope to win. Yeah. So what the state prosecutors chose to do was to agree now that Harris was indeed mentally ill and they would, uh, not want to release him into society because he could be a potential danger. They needed to have him evaluated to see if he could ever re-enter society. Mm-hmm. After years of denying any need for psyche valves, competency hearings, and responding to his numerous appeals on the basis of mental incompetency, 
just as he's about to be released, he is suddenly found not competent. Wow. They used his own appeal information against him. And in 1997, he was sent to Western State, where he remained for years in what is meant to be a short-term program. He worked hard. He was given day passes to visit family. Mm -hmm. He even had a job while he was there. So he was entrusted to work and be responsible while he was there. He was doing everything the program was meant to have him do. Yeah. Up until 2003, he was the first person on death row to be exonerated in the state of Washington. And he very well could be. I can't find any record that, that there has been any other inmates um, exonerated of charges and taken off a death row in the state. Mm -hmm. So when they finally couldn't find a reason to keep him there, keep in mind, this is supposed to be a short term transition yeah. program. He entered in 1997, yeah. right? Yeah. So they could no longer find a reason to keep him in this program, the state. He was released in 2008. He spent over 10 years in a short-term <laughs> program. I don't mean to laugh. It, it is laughable. It is. It's just, it it's sucks. It's horrible. Yeah. yeah. Like, what do they define as short-term? You know? Right. Well, it was not supposed to be 11 years no. in a program. No, no. That's for not. sure. Um, what is per perhaps the most tragic tragic ending and part of all this that is, is just horrible is after he was released, he passed away. Oh, that sucks. He, he passed away. Like natural? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, now you will note, I, I have no idea if he's... Um, if he was guilty, I have, I have no idea. Yeah. I, it's hard to say because I don't have the full picture and I can't present to anybody the full picture. So yeah. I'm not going to comment on was this man guilty or was he not? Um, evidence shows one person likely pulled the trigger. Was it Harris? Could have been. Yeah. It absolutely could have been. If anybody knows they're gone or they're not talking. Whatever happened in the trial for Gregory Bond, the evidence or whatever info they had that ended with the charges being dismissed, I, I have no idea what they are. But someone did commit this crime. What I do feel is that if Harris was truly mentally ill, this was all a miscarriage of justice. Yeah. What I can say also without a doubt is that I don't believe that Jimmy Turner or his uh, loved ones saw any justice in any of this. No. No, it, it's absolutely ridiculous that his crime was it's not solved in any way. No, it's not. There's no resolution. One last little bit of info that I want to share is something that I learned while reading this appeal was that there are statutes from cases where people or persons with mental conditions such as uh, schizophrenia, manic depressive disorder, as it was called at the time, are not necessarily considered unfit to stand trial simply because of their diagnosis. I didn't know that. Also, people or persons with amnesia can be found competent to stand trial. Essentially, reading through this you know, legal jargon, what they are looking for is that the accused be able to acknowledge that they are on trial yeah. for a crime, um, that they can ably communicate with their defense lawyers and that they fully understand the consequences of that crime and what it means for them. So saying you have a mental illness is not a free ride to commit horrible crimes. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. Um, but I did not think that those particular um, types of diagnoses would still you could still be competent, consider competent to stand trial. Yeah. Um, especially like schizophrenia. You, <laughs> that's a, a horrible diagnosis to have, but you can really have a lot of problems in everyday life with just reality and, you know, your perception of what's going on around you and how harmful you can be to yourself and other people from that diagnosis. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it was something that um, kind of opened my eyes a little bit in regards to that uh, along the lines of uh, if you are evaluated for a mental health issue, you're not necessarily going to get a pretrial competency hearing either. That was something that opened my eyes. I didn't know that. This is just for Washington. State. This is for anybody. Oh, anybody. Yeah. So what I hope to achieve here with this telling of this case is simply this. Um, my intention, especially with that last info in mind, is to make people actively think about how much mental health plays a part in our justice system. Hopefully, as we start to put more importance on mental health in schools, in juvenile detentions, in prisons, in the foster care system, just in everyday life, in places where it would do the most good, is it could possibly lead to a lessened strain on the justice system. You know, there are a lot of persons, people with mental health issues in the justice system, in the prison system. Should they necessarily be there? I don't know. Could have been avoided if they had gotten help at an earlier age? I don't know. But there's a good possibility. Yes, there really yeah. is. So that's, you know, that's a wrap on this episode. It was a heavy episode. It didn't have a good outcome. And I don't feel that justice was served to any of the parties involved. No. It's, I mean, it it's was a shame. I mean, it was fortunate that he got released, but then he, you know, passed away. He passed away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I mean, I think his appeal lawyer, they were trying, they were trying to help him. Yeah. I think his second set of lawyers was yeah. way more helpful than his the yeah. original one, especially given the history with his first lawyer, you know, yeah, I mean, there was everything he there. did for his family. I don't know. It's just human nature. Maybe the dude was just like, I'm tired of dealing with this family, but he should have said something. Um, he should have said something. Yeah. Like, hey, um, I can't do this. Like, the, wholeheartedly. The circuit um, judge that did the, that appeal, he did say there wasn't a conflict of interest. However, it, it again fell to the lawyer to raise the concern of, hey, I represent the family on a different matter currently. Yeah, My law firm has previously represented this exact person in other matters. And he should have allowed the judge at the trial to, you know, say, hey, okay, yes, this is a conflict. No, it's not. Yeah, But it should have been brought, brought up. up. Yeah. And it was not at, at no time. Um. The other the other thing on the flip side of that was that, you know, he Harris felt that his family was conspiring with his lawyer at the time to have him put away. And yes, that plays to the paranoia, but it also was that mentioned. Was he ever you know, was that ever brought up? Did he ever bring that up to anybody? Yeah, I don't know. know. You know, it's not clear. So it's, it's definitely, I, I, yeah, I just didn't have a, a good feeling leaving that one. Um, but it, it's a really, it, it, it's an important case um, in the state, especially since, as I said, he, up until 2003, and I don't know after, but up until 2003, he's the only person on death row in the state to be exonerated. And then they go and do that bullshit. Yeah. You know, hold him for 11 years, for 11 years in a, a short term program. All of a sudden he's mentally incompetent. Where were you during yeah. the 10 years? He's trying to get, you know, a, a new trial. He's at no point did they say that he wasn't, you know, that he didn't possibly commit this crime. They just wanted him to be evaluated. Yeah. What I will competent? say from like 1993 when it started till you know, 2000, I mean, there was a big leap in, like, psychology in the court systems. Yeah, I think they had to, though, because that's, I mean, in the 80s, you know, they started putting away people all over the place for, for like, drugs and, and well, yeah. other crimes. And they, they had to start looking at um, the influx of prisoners that they had and what types of crimes they were being committed at and how do they now navigate all of these 
criminals that are coming into the system. So they they kind of didn't have a choice. No, oh, you know? you're right. With the closing of the mental hospitals in the right. 80s. And um, yeah, that's the prisons became their new place of residence. Right. And that, that I, I don't think that they've, and I don't know what it's going to take to fix that or when that's going to get fixed or resolved in any way. They sure the hell did not do that in the 90s or the 2000s. No, no. And it's it's still not Being it's addressed. still not what it should be. No, you're right, but I yeah. I think with the court system moving forward that it was more prominent. I I think I, it's not yeah. there, but I mean those issues, those mental health issues have come to light and yeah. You know, they're taken at least into consideration now. I yeah, I I to agree with you, I think also the judges that are in these positions now to look at these appeals and, you know, Supreme Courts in different states and they're of a younger generation and they are, this is more prominent in their, yeah, it's more, you know, their scope of their sphere of what they're aware of and in, yeah. in the justice system. Yeah. Yeah. I And I think that's that can only get better. That's a good thing. It is a good thing, especially with cases like this that set a precedent. You know, it can only get better from there. Yeah. This is a reference now. This is this his case, if for nothing else, is a reference for other inmates who might go through the same things. You know, convicted persons who might go through the same issues. Yeah. Yeah. So it all starts someplace. You, you know, you got to start somewhere and... Things don't always get done right the first time, but that's why we keep trying. So, yeah. Um, okay, so just a reminder that our collaboration with Crimes and Closets is up on both of our podcasts now. So their episode was released this prior Monday, November 1st. Ours was released last Friday, a week ago, on October 29th. So go and listen to both of those. Um, Beth and Bryce came in hot for the episode that was released on our podcast. I I don't know, man. I think you're going to have to do it. I think you're just going to have to do a a case this season. You're you're breaking up. Stop doing that because that's that's bullshit. Up. I'm not <laughs> not. Your I'm clear. Faulty difficulties. No, 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 no. You would first of all, you would never allow my microphone to have technical difficulties ever, ever, because it would irritate you during uh, post editing. Uh, whatever i'm just saying if anybody agrees with me that bryce should be should take over Keep an your episode opinion to yourself <laughs> no if anybody do not agrees. express certain opinions on said twitter instagram or facebook we uh, appreciate all opinions especially the ones that say that you should participate in an episode more breaking up that you better fix that leak <laughs> Um, and then Christy and I had fun with our episode too. We we had some great cases that yeah. was released no, on good. their podcast. Um, so if you haven't listened to them yet, I don't know what the hell you're doing. Go and check them out. Get on it and tell them that you you know heard about them from us. Also, a small bonus was released just this Wednesday of an interview that I did with author Bryant Johnston, where we discussed his recently released book. Uh, Deep in the Woods, the 1935 kidnapping of nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser, heir to America's mightiest timber dynasty. It's a mouthful to say, um, but the book is fabulously done. And as you guys may remember, the George Weyerhaeuser kidnapping was the topic of our first episode last season. So season yeah. three, the uh, Tacoma Snatchings. So please give it a listen and go check out his book available now in basically anywhere you want to find it online. Amazon has it. You can download it as an ebook. You can buy it in, in, you know, handheld form. So join us again in two weeks when you bring, we bring you our next case. Are you Yay. ready for that? Are you ready? Um, Are you ready to get back into this season? Yes. I know you miss your what the fucks. <laughs> he played that, that, uh, barbershop, john intro like five times before we recorded this episode he, he was just so sad that it had no place in this episode in this season that's right but it's on board for next 
what the fuck season. Mm-hmm. It's ready to go. It is. You're, and you're going to love it. You're going to have so much fun when we get back into that. Yeah. Right. Yay. Until then, this is what we're doing. Mm. <laughs> All right. So until we see you next time, friends, stay safe. Be kind to one another. And stay out of the damn woods. Stay out of the woods. Bye, guys. Bye. What Happens in the Woods is an independent podcast and is managed and produced by Gospel for the Rebels, LLC. Research and content are presented by host Jessica, with all editing and producing done by your favorite resident techie, Bryce. We believe in transparency and will always list our sources and information in our episode notes. We are always looking for new cases and stories to tell. We welcome your interaction with us on Facebook and Instagram at WHIT Podcast and at Twitter, What Happens in the Woods, INT2. Or if you prefer, our website is whathappensinthewoods.com. The campfire is open to all. Thank you for your continued support of our podcast. If you love us and want to continue to hear us bring you episodes, please share and like us wherever you can. But the best way to help us grow is to hit all five stars and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast fix. Until we meet again, campers, stay safe and stay out of the damn woods.